Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whichever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Each week, the Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Nebel! Yeah, she does that a little bit differently. If you tune in for 16 episodes straight, you'll hear all the variations. Um, Only 16. (laughs) There might be more than that. For tonight's episode, we have with us S.P. Hendrick, the author of the Glastonbury Chronicles series, among others, and uh, we discuss with her her creative process and uh, how the characters speak to her and how she develops the stories. And we also have with us uh, three new authors. They're authors of the children's book Nymp and Toad. They are Henry, Josh, and Harrison Hertz. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, how, uh, what? We met these gentlemen at Condor, yes, and they had Condor. their own table, and they were right there with the rest of the uh, aspiring authors, and, you know, good for them. So, we want to encourage this sort of thing. We also encourage the, the idea of the writing dynasty. A lot of famous writers have done this. You know, uh, Anne McCaffrey wrote with her son Todd, and. Uh, uh huh. You know, Frank Herbert of Dune wrote with his son, so there's absolutely no reason why the spectacular Henry Hertz can't write with his sons. And he's got two of them. So what uh, what gave you the impetus to, to write this book? Well, I've been a fan of fantasy since I was a little kid. I love the Where the Wild Things Are. I lost track of how many times I read that thing. And then as I got older, I began to love Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so um, I've always been a fan of fantasy and I wanted to do something to encourage my kids to read fantasy. So I thought, well, what better way than to write a a little story just for them? And so I drafted a story for them and the story didn't quite turn out the way I thought in the sense that I read it to them and they gave me feedback. So what started out as a simple task to write them a fun story, get them excited about fantasy, um, bloomed into something much bigger where they got involved in helping me to write it and then we 
we, it got to the point where we were sharing it with people and they were saying, wow, that's really good. You ought to think about publishing this for real. And we were like, okay. And then we had to find an artist. And so the boys were then involved in providing art direction to the artist. And I think you guys have seen the book. You can agree the artwork is really stunning. It turned out really well. It did. I, I love Nymph and Toad and the character design for the... the uh... Oh, what are the characters? The little, the Niblings. short ones. Nibblings. Nibblings. So, guys, uh, how, uh, what was it like working working with your dad on a book? And and did you realize that's what you were doing when you were doing it? Um, it was mm, kind of like a. It wasn't really. He would tell us like to work on a certain section of a book. It'd be more like he'd give us so. When he first started writing it, we give him a little kind of bits of information on how he should change it. He could just pull it up on the computer and add a little bit in wherever we told him. And it would kind of be whenever I thought of, or whenever me or my brother, my brother and I thought of something, like to, um, I don't know, change, or that we thought would be cool, we'd tell him and then we'd kind of work on it from there. In fact, we have Harrison to thank for the title of the book. Nip and Toad is a, a, a word that he came up with, and it's it's the name of the book and it's the name of the protagonist yeah like what josh said it was it was it was fun because if it would also like keep our mind of homework and stuff just you know after our homework we dad would be like oh you want to work on the book some more and then we would give him feedback and stuff so uh there are a lot of magical creatures in the forest or they seem to be magical creatures this is a a whole race of of creatures that humans don't really ever get to see. So uh, funny how the word orc has come into uh, regular use and regular people. I think that didn't happen before Lord of the Rings movies. Well, and certainly people that are readers of fantasy will recognize a lot of the Tolkien um, ecosphere of goblins and orcs and trolls, but we did add some of our own creatures. The nibblings, the fuzzy little protagonists are our own invention, as are Nibbles, which are these sort of round, fierce mounts that some of the goblins ride, and rhinotaurs, which are a cross between rhinoceros and minotaurs. Oh, we're going to see those in the D&D games, aren't we? Yeah, the Nibbles looked um, really dangerous. I mean, all they've got going for them is mouth and legs for jumping and um, running away they look they're hard to steer though that's the that's the the, the drawback of riding a needle is they're they're very willful and hard to steer so uh, you wouldn't want to ride one yeah it didn't look like the uh was it goblins yeah the, the goblins, goblins ride them. Were riding them yeah. yeah it didn't look like they were having a great time with it and Beats just walking, barely, I, guess. I, I suppose and now and the ingenuity of the nibblings the pedal car uh, that was uh, that was a nice addition. That's sort of a departure from classical uh, classical fantasy, uh, where indeed it you was. We you don't... we want the whole story to be about the nibblings using creativity and thought to try and get past the various obstacles that they encounter. They're constantly they're the smallest creatures in the forest, and so everybody they run into is bigger and meaner, and they don't have the luxury of. Um, out fighting them or out running them, so they have to outsmart them or outmaneuver them. If you can't convince them, confuse them. <laughs> Everybody, exercise! One and two. And one. <laughs> She's really read the book. I really have read the book. 
Um, how that works, by the way. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done well. Maybe it wasn't exercising, but confusing the bully while you run away. Yeah, it's definitely a that's good, actually a good tactic. Good I've used that one too. Uh, so, how long did it take you to come up with the the concept originally? And how long did it take? Uh, how long did it take you boys to uh, to get Dad squared away on on the new manuscript? I want to say that you know, it was probably about six months of of drafting the original and interacting with the boys on the manuscript. And then we kind of, it was just for personal use. So it, the project lay fallow for a while until my sister-in-law said, you know, you ought to think about getting that published. And then that started us on a whole new journey of, okay, now we have to find an artist who is A, really good, and B, willing to work with us. <laughs> so that took a while. And then we found somebody we really liked, and it's a slow process. It's artwork. The guy's got a day job. And, uh, it, you know, it took... Uh, quite a while to finally get the artwork, um, but the end result was worth the wait. What's the name of your artist? Sean Eddingfield was the main artist, and we also had help from a second guy, um, Bill Mouse. Well, they were all very good. Thank you. So how long has the book been in print at this point? Um, the current version, we, we came out originally... Uh, with one version, and we it was an eight and a half by eleven format, and too many people were saying thinking it was a picture book because of the size, and it's really an early chapter book. So, uh, the current incarnation of the book came out in April, so it's coming up on a year for that current uh, uh, incarnation, and um, now it's six by nine inch. It looks like what it is, which is an early chapter book. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Josh and Harrison, uh, this question is for you. Do you have any plans to do some more writing? And what do you think you might like to write about? Um, well, for me, writing, it's kind of, it's not really when I write, I don't really kind of, it's not really forced. It's more just kind of like putting my thoughts down on paper. Uh -huh. So if I had to write in the future. I don't know if it would be for like a biography or like a, well, what, oh, we got a couple. You're forgetting about the two projects that we're working on yeah, right now. Yeah, well, can, can we tell them? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, we're working on two other books right now. One of them is, it's about this little creature named Finston, and he's... He's an alien, so this is a real science fiction book, not fantasy. All right. Yeah, and then the other one is... Twignibble. Twignibble's about this little sloth named Twignibble, and he... Uh, goes around the world and um, makes his own machines that he used to help his friends, like like endangered animals and stuff. It's it's kind of teaches kids to like help their environment. So does uh, twig twignibble 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 slots. So is this a, uh, is this sort of a high adventure thing, or is it? Uh, I think it's an um, ongoing. Sort of private... It's an ongoing quest. It's helping hmm. helping the environment, and there's many ways. That, that you know someone can help the environment if one is technologically inclined to you know because he builds things so what do you think Josh <laughs> about uh, about where this uh, about where the book's going to go and and uh, do how, they in how fact it... live happily ever, ever after and With... and what would you like and uh, while you're thinking about that question here's another one what would you like to have happen with the book in terms of how well it does and and where what it could lead to for you. Twignable, the motion picture. Like, come on. Wait, 
Are you so you're saying about Twig Nibble, not about Nibbit Toad? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, talking, talking about the future Twig project. Nibble now. Okay. The future project. Yeah, with Twig Nibble, I think since we already have a little more experience than we did when we started with Nymphinto, and I think it will be a little bit easier to promote it. Of course, we have to put the work out there, but now that we have, we know more people, they might be able to help us mm-hmm. more. Of course, a movie or a, I don't know, a video game yeah. would be cool, but that's, you know. <laughs> well, I think the material would probably lend itself to, uh, to a video game, you know, or a cell phone game or, you know, something for a tablet or something like that. There's a, there are a lot of different ways that you can take an idea like this and move it forward out into the public arena than there used to be. Uh, there's, a, there's this concept that uh, I have sort of stumbled across. It's called transmedia. And the idea is to develop your, your idea across several different platforms at once. So you do a book and, um, you know, a, maybe a video or a game, or you make a website that's fun, or something like that. Disney's been doing this for years. Oh, they You've have seen been. it. They have been, but they usually start with one property, and and then they make something out of it, and then they make the website, and then they make the book. Uh, but so you're talking about doing it all at once? Yeah, doing it all at once wow, and making all of, of these making all of these things sort of lace together and work as a whole piece, so that. The, the book is really just part of the creation. Yeah, that's. Uh, if you have the budget to fund us to develop some apps and some videos, uh, let's talk. Right? So <laughs> we figure we start with the the paper book and the ebook, and mm-hmm. if it if it there's enough interest, we could always look at developing an app or something else. But uh, we we are a modest publishing company, and we mm-hmm. we have to take it one step at a time, just like the nibblings. Birch Tree Press, the family firm. That's right. So, Harrison, what uh, what do you like to write about, and what are you working on now? Well, in my journal at school, I like to write about basketball, so if I were to write another book, maybe it'd probably be basketball, but I don't think my dad or brother would want to do something about basketball. Uh-huh. But well, they like a combination of sports, because I do basketball, and my brother does parkour, oh, and we really? can do, like, yeah, we could do like a mix of basketball, parkour, like doing flips over a trash can and taking a shot at the same time or something like that. I like it. Awesome. Maybe we'll make a science fiction version. It's like zero gravity parkour basketball. Well, what is basketball going to be like on the moon with one-sixth gravity? Your your basketball course is going to be vast. It's going to be six times bigger because you can leap that high. Parkour. That's a fascinating hobby. Well, I thought they named that for Spider-Man. You know, Peter Parkour. Oh. He can do that stuff, too. That's terrible. Thank you. I've been saving that one up for a special Yeah, Spider-Man doesn't really do parkour. He just sticks on the stuff. So how did you get into parkour? Tell us about that. Uh, Well, I have one of my friends. Um, I was doing, actually, the cross before, and um, so that was fun. It was just, it was, um, it was fun, it just wasn't, like, it was fun, it just wasn't super, like, interesting to me. It was mm-hmm. more of just kind of a sport that I do, be like, yeah, whatever. And so my friend was talking about, he, he went to this gym, and, um, 
Uh, he's talking about this thing they do parkour, and I knew what it was at the time, but I hadn't started doing it, and he, uh, kind of suggested to me, and there was, like, the first class was free, so I figured, why not? So we went there, and I tried it out, and it was really fun, and, um, I, so I eventually, I kind of quit l- lacrosse, and I was doing, now I'm doing just parkour uh-huh. as my kind of sport. Some people don't classify it as a sport, but it's more of a kind of a, yeah, you like you said, a hobby or something that you do to, that's my workout. It's definitely athletic. It's definitely a workout. And it's more about, like, parkour and free running. People, that's like the two different things. People say that they're like, well, some people say they're the same thing, but parkour is what you necessarily have to do to get over an object or to get wherever you want. <laughs> and then free running is, like, parkour, except you can, it makes, it's like, a, like, a better looking version of it, like add, <laughs> adding see. flips and like twists and stuff that aren't necessary, but make it like so. And you can do uh, free running or parkour anywhere. Um, lacrosse, you really need a field, you know, a specific. You know, That's right. Kind of yeah. Thing. I'm fascinated that that there are classes in parkour, and and even at my age, I think I might like to try it. You know, I'm yeah. I'm an old guy. So <laughs> yeah, but you're you're pretty athletic as yeah, as, yeah, as old I, guys go. As old guys go. I'm not in bad shape. So um, this get is, your son to go with you. Yeah, you might enjoy that. He might actually. It might give him. He has a 14 year old son. Yeah, he's, he might, he's not here right now. No, I I wish he was. He'd probably enjoy meeting you. So the um, so now that you've done this book, um. Uh, have have you uh, has it opened uh, opened your eyes to some new possibilities for the future? I mean, what does that pr- question even mean? Well, I mean, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, we often don't realize what we can do until we actually find ourselves on the other side of the task, mm. and then it's wow, we actually pulled this off. We built a radio station. We published our own book with illustrations and uh, a nice slick cover and it's at conventions and people are buying this thing. Now, so so, so you're do? going to conventions. Are you going have you gone to other conventions besides the one where we met you? Yes. We yeah, we go to um, we've been to WonderCon and Comic-Con. Ooh. Oh, you were at WonderCon. I was what? At, I was at WonderCon, but so I, we're about a million other people. Yeah, and un- unfortunately that morning I I he what got his. He got Saturday? his. I don't know what you were doing Saturday, but Sunday you I were. Go. I wasn't there, so right. I couldn't tell you. Right. But uh, he got his foot run over by a truck. Yes, <laughs> I was. He was I in the parking lot. The... Some idiot was parking and ran right over his foot. And actually, he goes stop, 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 and the guy stops on, on his foot. On my foot. And I don't know, Gene. That's a pretty lame excuse. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is now. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. Yeah, we were at WonderCon and Comic-Con, so we've met all kinds of <clears throat> authors and illustrators. Who's we the coolest met... people you've met there? <clears throat> Excuse me. We met um, Stephen Silver, who was the animator for Kim Possible. We met yeah. Ron Noble, who was... Uh, actually, we met him at a different event. We met him. He's the lead animator for Rocket Power and Rugrats and the Wild Thornberries. We met Stan Sakai, who's famous for his Usagi Yojimbo mm-hmm. Samurai Rabbit. Uh-huh. Um we met Grant Gould, who's an animator for the animated version of Star Wars, and we met David Peterson, who's famous for the Mouse Guard graphic novels. 
Eric Schanauer, who's known for the Trojan War graphic novels and the Louis Dravaz graphic novels. We met a ton of uh, authors. We met Dan Gutman, very famous children's author. I've met Tony Terlizzi. Um, even at uh, the Small Condor Con, we met a bunch of uh, the Collin brothers and Stephen Blackmore and Werner Vinge. We met a bunch of very well-known authors right here in San Diego, so that was pretty cool. At Comic-Con, we got to meet uh, Richard Taylor from uh, Weta. From, you know, they do Lord of the Rings. They yes. do props. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Lord of the Richard Richard Taylor. Wow. So this has really put you in. It, this is this whole. This is me stuttering, and I'm going to edit this out. I promise. Uh, but this is the experience of publishing this book has really sort of uh, opened doors to a new world for you. It really has. It's been a real learning experience for the boys because it's not just about writing the book and doing the art for the book. It's about promoting the book so they've been interviewed on radio like this they've uh-huh. been interviewed in for magazine articles they've gotten to meet people they we go to events book signings and they interact with people we do book readings so we've gone to you know barnes and noble and or we've done uh, children's museum in san diego and they've done readings from the book and so oh, the public speaking skills have been honed and um, they understand the money side of things, that it's not just if somebody pays for a book, that's not all ours. We have to pay for the printing, and they, you know, if, if they pay with a credit card, we have to pay the credit card fees. And so they understand the concept of revenue and cost and profit. Um, so uh, it's been a great development experience for them. So Yeah, it's, it sounds like a huge learning experience for everybody involved. I mean, when we, when we started Krypton Radio, we had no idea how complicated and how expensive it was going to be to, to keep the station in operation every day. And uh, it was a real eye-opener. But at the same time, it also has yielded uh, a number of really uh, really wonderful experiences, and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, I still want to read uh, Harrison's bas- basketball book. <laughs> okay, well, we'll let you know when that comes out. All right. Right now we're busy, we're focused on, we do, We have three things now, right? We're promoting Nip and Toad, we are um, working on Twig Nibble, and we're working on Finston. Um, so we're just going to keep pushing good books out, and hopefully uh, people will enjoy, continue to enjoy reading them. So tell us more about Finston. We haven't heard about Finston yet. So Josh mentioned it a little bit. Basically this alien boy it goes off for a walk with his mom, his alien mom, and they he runs off and gets lost, and he's has to find his way home before it gets dark. And as he's wandering home, he meets all these really strange creatures that live on the planet, and they have some very amazing powers. And um, some of them help him find his way home, but um, eventually he meets up with his mom, and it all ends well, and he learns his lesson not to go running off. But what's really kind of the neat reveal at the end, we have a note to parents at the end of the book. Every one of these really bizarre defense mechanisms that are demonstrated by these alien creatures are, and they, they're, it's straight out of science fiction. They're, in fact, abilities that are possessed by animals that live right here on Earth. So the, the hidden thing, the hidden, the, the gem inside the book is really to get kids excited about animals and about learning more about the amazing animals that live right on this planet here. That's brilliant. Oh, that's clever. I yeah. like that a lot. So, all right, well, I'll put you down for one copy, Gene. Please. <laughs> okay. And I'm sure uh, by the time the book is done, I'm going to find some young readers who are going to be interested in it. Thank so have you read some of the other uh, uh, 
Josh and Harrison, have you read some of the other books like Spaceship Under the Apple Tree? And uh, what other what other science fiction for young you people like? is there out there? Um. Well, let me think. You've read the Hunger Games. You even read some YA, right? You read the Twilight. You read. Uh, yeah, I read the first version of Twilight. I read the first the first book in the Twilight series. Uh-huh. The Hunger Games. Um, Hobbit. Per- yeah, the Hobbit. Uh, Percy Jackson. Oh, Percy uh-huh. Jackson. Yeah, my son loves Percy Jackson. I've read some of the stuff myself. I find it very enjoyable. And Harrison's read. Uh, uh Gregory the Overlander. That's a pretty good book. See People don't realize that was written by Suzanne Collins. Of... From the Hunger Games. That yes. Huh. Oh, what was that one? Yeah, the, uh, the, the vampire guy. That's not really... Well, it's sort of fantasy. There's this... Uh, uh, Vladimir Toad... Or Todd, I don't know. There's this vampire series I thought was kind of good. You know, we've decided. So, you know, we, what, you're struggling to name a lot of science fiction and fantasy books for the younger kids, and that's actually... Uh, a sore spot with me, and that's in fact why we are. We wrote Nymph and Toad also, and we wrote Finston. We want to start putting out picture books and easy readers and early chapter uh-huh. books that are fantasy and science fiction so that, you know, kids don't have to wait till they're so old to read The Hobbit or Narnia. They can get started, you know, with the earlier and get them excited about the genre. Yeah, early chapter books, that, there's a hole in that, that uh, particular age range you know yeah there is there i mean that about seven eight yeah something like that because you've got to be something like you have to have the patience nine nine or eleven somewhere between nine and eleven to really pick up harry potter and get anything out of it well that's because you know and they start i think hogwarts starts at age 11 because that's that's how old they they expect the readers to be readers going to be yeah boy kids grew up with that one yeah, the, for the first time, kids were standing in line and getting excited about a book. That's why I read Harry Potter's. What is about these books that is making kids stand in line like it was a, a, a hit movie or something? And I found out it was, they're very good. So if either of you guys read uh, either, let's see, Harry Potter or... Um, well, let's see. I, War and the, Peace? No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding, kidding. I haven't even read War and Peace. Yeah. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Neither have I. I've seen the movie, but haven't read that one. Oh, the book's got you more know, the going book on. Is so much, the book is so much cooler. Because for every one thing that's in the movie, there are three in the book. And they're just as cool, and sometimes you wonder why they left it out of the movie. You can't fit everything in the movie. I mean, look at Lord of the Rings, same thing. You, you've got... The books have the luxury of a lot more time than the movies, so it's it's natural that they would cut things. That's well, it's, true. it's a different uh, it's it's a different medium completely. I mean, uh, you have uh, at least a, Lord of the Rings it, mostly followed the book. Hunger Games, not, not as much. So much, yeah. And and Percy Jackson, same problem. There's going to the be a Jackson second. Books. There's a second Percy Jackson movie. Coming there's up. yeah. There is a second. There's a yeah. It's uh, the Ocean of Monsters. I think that's. Well, I think that's the second book. Isn't yeah, it? that is the, the second sea book. of monsters. Sea, sea of, monsters, of monsters. That's it. And I've seen. They have, they have several books. They. I they don't it. just make. They didn't just make two. They no, like, he's talking about those coming out with the second, second movie. movie. Uh, yeah, second movie. They're doing. They're doing the movie from the second book. Yeah. Well, if they don't and, hurry uh, up, that kid's gonna be way too old by the end of it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. the problem. So the Percy Jackson novels. Which which ones have you read? 
I've read them all. You've read them all. I read them all. Except for the new ones, I think it's called um, Mark of Athena. I haven't read that one yet. Mm -hmm. I need to get around to looking it up. It's on Amazon everywhere. Fine booksellers everywhere. So, so where, if fine booksellers everywhere, where can we find Nimp and Toad if we want to read it? The it- easiest place to get your signed copy is through our website, which is not surprisingly www.nimpandtoad.com. But the book is also, and that's the only way to get a signed copy. But if you want to buy them, they are available through Amazon.com, both paperback and Kindle, and uh, BN, BN.com, Barnes and Noble. So there is a Kindle version. Yes, there is. And I should mention our friends here in San Diego, Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore. There's a, there's about three different Barnes & Nobles in San Diego, plus Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore that carry the paperback in person. Yeah, we know about uh, Mysterious Galaxy, and uh, we, we love them. It's a great store. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. This has been a, a real treat for us. It's not often we get to talk to authors... Who are not old enough to shave yet. That's right. Well, it's been our pleasure. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You have just heard the Event Horizon interview with Henry Hertz, Joshua Hertz, and Harrison Hertz, authors of Nymph and Toad from Birch Tree Publishing. Coming up next, S.P. Hendrick, author of The Glastonbury Chronicles. Stay tuned. Our guest tonight is S.P. Hendrick, author of Uneasy Lies the Head and sequels, many sequels, and a universe of her own devising based on uh, the Celtic mythology. And what's the series name? What is the series The Glastonbury Chronicles. The Glastonbury Chronicles. This is the one series. The other series is Tales of the Dark She, and the two series dovetail. Although one starts off in the past and one starts off in the future. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, let's uh, let's start off with uh, with where the origins of the series came from. Boy, I wish I knew. Um, they just sort of hit me one day. It was like connecting dots and a lot of what ifs. And I had been steeped for a long time in Celtic mythology and various and sundry other things came into play, and the original series, the first series, Glastonbury Chronicles, was started in about 1994, when I just sort of started wondering, you know, there's this guy named William Rufus who slew William, uh, not, there's this guy named William Rufus, King William Rufus, who was slain by Walter Tyrell, and then there was a case of princes in the tower where the guy's name who killed them was James Terrell. I wonder if they were related. And it turned out that they were related and that nothing happened to either of them for having killed royalty. So I started wondering, well, what if all of these things are connected? And there was some speculation by certain authors that William Rufus had been one of the sacred kings who died so that his blood could save the land by his blood being spilled on the soil and the fact that his body had been carted all over England and the blood had been going all over the place. And I sort of said, well, okay, this is in the past. What would happen if we transported this scenario into the future? And what would happen if 
sometime in the future after the monarchy has been abolished, just before it gets reestablished as it had gotten reestablished before, there is somebody else who is an incarnation of this sacred king and it's going to be his time to have to stand up and do what he has to do for the soil, for the land. And what if his best friend is a member of the Tyrrell line? And what if there's been a secret society all of these years called the Order of the Sword and the Rose? And <laughs> what if all of these things will happen in the future and we can have a, a whole interesting relationship going on with this? What happens if they remember their past lives? And all of this goes into making it up. So it's a future his, It's a future history. Pardon my squeak. That series is a future history, although it goes back into the past. Uh -huh. And they remember a lot of past lives. They remember the princes in the tower. They remember William Rufus. They remember several other people who aren't named. And through the various books in the series, more past lives get brought into it, um, including several that are pure speculation. Uh, somebody dying behind the lines during World War II, uh -huh. or excuse me, World War One in that case. And... Um, that being what turns the tide at Ypres and what turns the tide for the British eventually because things don't happen overnight. Stirred into that a little bit was the fact that I've been obsessed with the play Hamlet for ever since about the oh, fifth grade and I had a chance to explore the relationship between Hamlet and Horatio and sort of project it on the two of them and uh, it gets interesting. There have been some productions where the relationship between Hamlet and Horatio is closer than anything else in the play. And it sort of took an exploratory end to that whole thing. Um, and there are quotes from Hamlet throughout the series. But it doesn't start there in 2065. It starts back with the other series, Tales of the Derekshire, which starts back about the time of Boudicca's Rebellion, a little bit before that, and goes into the Celtic mythology with the battle goddess Morrigan, who has decided to claim one Dougal on his 19th birthday during an eclipse of the sun, and decide that he will watch with her throughout time until the she come back to Tara Mound. But there's a price for this. He must live on human blood. Oh boy. Not a vampire. Not a vampire. Oh, no. Vampires have certain things that they're subject to. So, so this is a no sparkles out. No sparkles, none at all. The only thing sparkly about him is the fact that, as he happens to be the firstborn son of Cahulan, mm -hmm. he is also the grandson of the god Lu, who is pretty much a solar deity. So he's not particularly affected by light or by almost anything. There are a few things that affect him, and they are things that have come out of the darkness of another mythology and who are seeking to destroy the people of the Celtic world, whether they be Irish or Scottish or the insular Celts, such as the ones Boudicca was leading. So you've woven a lot of Celtic mythology into this. It's, I have. It sounds like Celtic <clears throat> mythology is really the, the skeleton and the framework for all of this. Celtic mythology is definitely the skeleton and the framework, and a lot of the, the precepts of what go into it 
go throughout Celtic mythology, even though there have been Vikings and there have been Norse, and, and a lot of people in the British Isles say, oh no, the Brits aren't Celts. Well, there was so much intermarriage, there was so much um, of the insular Celts who got absorbed by the conquerors, that the bloodlines are so intertwined. I think that the old gods uh, would not particularly worry about whether somebody spoke with a British accent or a Scottish brogue or Irish or Welsh or whatever. Or it's Georgia the land. or <laughs> Alabama. Yes, it's, the, it's the, the bloodlines that run through them. It's the soil that they walk upon, the land. The king and the land are one. The king and the land are definitely one. What happens when uh, when the earth goes few and uh, people don't live on earth anymore? They manage to migrate. There is a planet way far away, which used to be called New Britain and is now called Britannia, now in the far future. About I book, they rue that. About, about <laughs> book three. I'm sorry. Where uh, it's the last. Somebody passed the salmon of contrition. (laughs) (laughs) It is the last colony of the British Empire. And only because there is a colony out in space is there a British Empire. But a lot of the people. The sun never sets. (laughs) Lots of suns do not set. The galaxy does not set. So things stir up there, and a lot of the same forces. It's mostly a Celtic settlement. Um. A lot of the old religion, as a matter of fact, almost exclusively the old religion has come back on this planet. But new planet, new rules, um, it's not exactly the same. They have a problem with a thing called phase lightning, which can get to you and starts cooking you from the inside out. They're not exactly sure what causes it. Something about crossing the ley lines wrong is one possibility. They also have an unstable atmospheric pressure, which means that water doesn't always boil at 212 degrees. And the tea that they drink is a native herb that, if it's boiled at too high a temperature, it can cause hallucinations, or at least what they think are hallucinations. Give me some of that. (laughs) Yes, I was a child of the 60s. (laughs) So so, um, they have, there's the potential there for vision quests. Exactly. Although they have vision quests without anything synthetic. In order to become the king, in order to become a knight of the Order of the Sword and the Rose, one has to go on a vision quest. And whether or not the person achieves the vision decides whether or not they're really of the blood. And whether or not they've tapped into their heritage. Very few people get turned away, however. When they're called to it, they're, they're pretty much are called to it for a reason. I hadn't realized that uh, that the series was a future history series and that it was um, uh, Celtic myth- uh, a sort of a Celtic mythology thread uh, in outer space. Celts in space! <laughs> Somewhat. The last time we saw the spaceship swine trek, we hoped it would be the last time. But it's back. Curses! <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a Muppet show humor leaning in from the other world there uh so so um what um i have to because it's in space i have to uh i have to ask about the uh uh the way the interstellar society is is 
is built and how how the the great connection of worlds are they connected with any other worlds or are they out there on their own in the beginning they are connected in the beginning they have various and sundry visitors from mars colony which survived also but later on by uh the fourth book in the series actually by the revolution that takes place in the third book in the series they're pretty much cut off this is a a bunch of people who are on the far end of the supply trains Uh and when there is a revolution and the people who are in charge of the coup do not believe in any kind of religion religion is a cause for being executed having a religion practicing a religion and the brand of science that they're coming up with doesn't work. The machines don't work with it. They don't have all of the things to keep them going that they would have had had they been on Earth. Most of the people they've executed are the people who were the technicians because their science and their religion worked hand in hand. So they're left with a society that pretty much gets blown back to the Middle Ages where they don't have anything but horses to ride around on. When they're out of ammunition and and weapons of that kind they're back to using bows and arrows and spears and knives and swords and things that they could have used in the middle ages because they still have the technology to make that but their whole communication with outside their whole way of living has completely changed so back complete, to older times so a, com, a nearly complete cultural regression though. exactly because they know, no, they know of the things that were but they can't do it although by two or three generations all of what was before becomes mythology they've changed history they've rewritten history so that these things never happen a lot of people don't believe they were ever on any planet other than the or planet they that now. they're on yeah. that, there, that there was such a thing as earth they, nobody is interested in coming to visit these people because the price of, of being yourself is pretty much death. The price of having the technology is not good. So once again, it becomes time for the king to awaken and lead his people back to the light and to be able to get things back to normal and back to an order. Meanwhile, they've had to d- disguise everything. They disguise their mythology in the ways that they plant certain flowers together. Taking some of it from the Book of Flowers, some of it from Shakespeare. If you plant a gladius next to a rose bush, it's a place that the order of the sword and the rose Ah, are. So gladiola is coming from gladius, and then roses, meaning secret. If you plant rosemary for remembrance pansies for thought you're supposed to look and there's something there that you need to know but most of the mythology is disguised in a simple deck of tarot cards which nobody really looks at much they're just pictures on cards and the people who are taken over don't really know what they're for there's a whole history a whole mythology everything in these cards and the the cards are pretty spot on of telling people what's going to happen, of when the king is coming back, things like that. So, so they're technomages. So they're not even technomages. Sort of a, sort of a uh, an undercurrent of of the the former knowledge. They're keeping it alive for somebody who can understand it and do something with it. And the cards are actually 
in the process of being produced right now. I sent the manuscript with oh, the... for real? For real. Okay. I sent the manuscript of the cards to the publisher who has sent them to the artist who is, in, at this point, painting the pictures that will go on them from the descriptions that I had. And they should be out either next year or the year after, depending on how long it takes her to do 78 cards. Mm-hmm. That's always a, an issue with the tarot yes. deck. So it's the uh, the tarot of the sword and the rose, and it will be available eventually. At and that's, fine, fine booksellers near you. Hopefully. Hopefully. At least on Amazon. So they're how, all they're near everybody. Yep. So how many how many books are in the ark so far? At this point there's three of the Tales of the Dargshi, which starts with Boudicca's Rebellion and runs through King John. Um, I will be going to Britain in October to research for the next few hundred years in that series. We'll miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, oh, no, I will only be gone for two weeks, but I will oh. be researching <laughs> in two weeks and doing the World Fantasy Convention in Brighton. I will be researching the, the actual physical places where these things occur so they look right in the book. Um, and there are six so far in the Glastonbury Chronicles. Whether there, or not there is, there there are is no more, parking in Brighton, by the way. There's almost none. That's okay. We're going in by train. <laughs> that's really the only way you can go in. I think they have like one parking lot, and it has thirty cars. Yes, and then that's it in all of Brighton. Now we're going. We're taking the train from the airport and going there. And yeah, picking up a car afterwards. Of course, you don't need a car in London either. Not really, no. But the other places I have to go, I need a car, like up into Scotland. And there is a there is a really fascinating uh, place, and I don't I don't know if you'll have time to visit it, but uh, there's a village called Fishbourne. And at Fishbourne is a Roman villa that some unlucky farmer dug up with the tip of his plow uh, in the <laughs> 1970s. Uh, he was plowing along, and all of a sudden, uh, he starts seeing little blue tiles in the wake of his plow. Mm-mm. And he says to himself, oh, criminy. Yeah, I've just lost because, the place. <laughs> yeah, I've just lost my farm. And, and it turned out that his, the... This amazing uh, blue ocean-themed tiled floor from the main room uh, was mere inches below the surface, and he'd been farming there for most of his life and hadn't known it. How wonderful! Yeah, but uh, today there's a uh, there's a building over top of it, and uh, the villa had um, had hot and cold running water. It had uh, central heating. And uh, and the m- most of the floor is is still intact, and uh, they have this arch built out over it so that you can walk out over the top of it to look at it without actually without actually stepping on it. And uh, it dates to the fourth century BC. What major city is it near? Uh, I, you know, I don't remember. I remember that we had to go west out of London on the train for about an hour to get there. Okay. And it, yeah, it's a little town called Fishbourne. I will look it up. Yeah, it's like somewhere between, uh, it's certainly between London and Brighton. I don't know exactly where it is. It's been a long time since I've been there. Well, Brighton's kind of south. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, this is all going to be in the south of England. Okay. You know, so it's it's pretty much directly west of, of London. Okay. I will look into it. Thank so, you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's there are all sorts of strange little things dotted all over. Uh, 
all over England. It just history just oh, bleeds out of every stone. Amazingly, amazingly. So, what what areas are you going to? What what attractions uh, are attracting you for um, inspiration for your next work? I need to do a long exploration of the West End because two of the characters in I'm not sure it's going to be the very next book there may be one or two between them um, are two characters who are real life people who I thought wouldn't it be interesting if I put them together and it turned out that they were fast friends Ah, very good Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Bram Stoker Really? They knew each other They worked at the Lyceum together I'll be darned they they were uh, they did publicity and such for Irving's plays. Hated him. Uh, it has often been said that the character of Dracula was based on him. I'm not entirely sure A that that's sucker. true. But um, I thought it would be what, what, nice to juxtapose the two of them together. So I I need to take a look at the Lyceum and walk around it and walk in it because I am under the impression that it has not changed much since the days it was in use back then, except for electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to... And of course, Kensington Garden is on the West End. Yes. And that's that's the place that you really need to just, just sort of soak up yes. for a while. I need to get back to Scotland for a couple of things. I would like to go back to the Isle of Skye for a day. Um, Stratford-upon-Avon... Just because you just go into the places where you can see good plays. No, I actually I want to pick up a few things about Shakespeare to weave into some of it. Uh-huh. Um, I also need to do a little little more work on Doctor John D. I'm thinking there will be an Elizabethan one in here. Um, the thing that it has been stopping me from doing it is. People are going to expect if I'm doing Elizabethan to use Elizabethan language, oh, which does God. not fit into the rest of the way that the rest of the books are. So it's like, am I going to come to a screeching halt? Am I going to just sort of have this be an incident that is remembered in the past or make it into a full book? Uh, have not yet decided on that. But then I hadn't decided on much of anything when I started writing these. They just all sort of happened. Mm-hmm. When I wrote Uneasy Lies the Head, I thought for sure that was going to be a one-of book. But when you play with the idea of reincarnation, even though you kill them off very dead, they can surprise you and come back and say, Hi, we're back. What, what other adventures yeah. do you have for us? And they've done that several times. Every time I think they're good and dead, they show up again in the middle of the night and say, we're back. Reichenbach yeah. Falls is nothing to these people. This is true. <laughs> they, they pop back up as little flowers. Isn't Something that like that. reincarnation is? <laughs> Ow, no. No, more like swords and roses. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, uh, the Derek Shee books, the Dougal books, I'm, I'm sure his name is really not pronounced Dougal. That's just the way it was in my head. I'm sure that the Celtic pronunciation is probably closer to Doyle, which is one of the things that I came up with. Why why don't we put Conan Doyle in the books? Mm. Um, maybe a distant relative. The but, only Dougal I know is just you know, totally not not a Derek Shee. Let's just say <laughs> he's a the, sociology professor. The inspiration you know? for and, and not at all 
the oh, inspiration for Dougal was very strange. I was at a Renaissance fair many, many, many years ago, and there was this gent in a Royal Stuart tartan played kilt the whole the whole thing and jet black hair and blue eyes and it was high noon and about 103 degrees and I looked at him with his pale skin and then he smiled at me and he had fangs and it was just like there's got to be a story so I wrote one (laughs) and that was only going to be one book too that didn't Quite work didn't work out, out that, way. that way, did it? No, they, they keep getting talkative. I keep saying that I do not write these books. I take dictation. They're all written first-person male, and I am maybe a first-person, but I'm definitely not male. But they just sort of take over, and I'll have arguments with them, and they'll say, shut up and write it down exactly the way I'm telling you. You'll find out why later. And two books later, it will turn out to be a major plot point. So... I've quit arguing. I just sometimes I'll argue about spelling, but that's about it. So you do? Do you do many drafts, or or are you close to your final draft on your first one? Um, it depends on the book. Originally, I could not compose on the typewriter, let alone the computer. I'd have to write it all out in longhand on yellow tablet with black ink, and then I would go and input it very slowly, and I would edit as I was inputting, and that would be the second draft. Because there was nothing more intimidating than a blank white page or a blank white screen. No, it's because <laughs> I'm a lousy typist. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot touch that type to this too. day. That works too. Eventually, somewhere along the line, I made the connection and I could actually compose on, on the keys. Um, the very last book that I have out the barley and the rose went through a lot of editing it went through throwing out some chapters and going back and it was like what am i doing here and it became uh the longest in the series of of the books it is it is massive and i still don't know how i wrote it all because i didn't they did i know (laughs) the usual Um, way but it's uh fairly close i'll go back and i'll i'll edit after I've written it all down. But that's the only one that I've really had a lot of, of having to go back and do things over in, where something wasn't working right, where it didn't make sense. And in that case, I think it was a case of my logical mind overruling, sort of, and saying, no, this is not going to work. Let's go back and tell the story again. Maybe I didn't hear you right. Mm-hmm. And it did. And I find out that, you know... You stand long enough in a hot shower and things start to make sense. The little the, the, the hot water on the brain and the little synapses go and the blood's running faster. And they start talking again. So, yeah. Yeah, right in the shower where you can't get at your yellow tablet and black pen. Exactly. Well, exactly. But then you go out and you've got a, a, a framework to go well, through. Yeah, but you still, yeah, you still have the the singular vision you right. can sense how everything fits together right where you it's like oh before. of course why didn't you tell me that i was trying to you were busy listening to the radio oh okay you were listening to krypton radio exactly oh, exactly plug 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 <laughs> so yeah there's there's a lot of different things making this up i i sometimes feel like i will look at history as an ancient astronomer looked in the night sky 
and saw all of these points of light and tried to make pictures out of them, connected the dots and made pictures, and then wrote the mythology around them or had the mythology and made pictures to go into them. And that's what I'm trying to do with words. There, there's some mythology in there that isn't really part of Celtic mythology. It's cut out of whole cloth and thrown in there, but it fits, it works. There's some history in there that is sort of like you have pieces and they might connect, but until you make a bold jump of, of faith or of logic uh-huh. and say, okay, they do connect and this is why this happened. For instance, the the um, historical thing that was twisted around when they made Lion and Winter. <clears throat> they had this wonderful relationship going between the King of France, Philip, and Richard Lionheart. No. In reality, it was his brother Geoffrey and Philip who were so close that when Geoffrey became the Duke of Brittany and married Constance of Brittany and moved over there. A lot of people said it was to be closer to the King of France. Mm-hmm. Um, n- Philip had no children while Geoffrey was alive. Geoffrey's sole child, Arthur, who probably should have been king, was born posthumously. But when Geoffrey died in an accident during a tournament that was being put on for him, by Philip to celebrate something. Philip threw himself into the grave. He did not want to survive. He says, bury me with him. Um, it's that kind of thing which made me think, okay, the two of these people have a relationship that is very similar to the relationship that they have in other stories, in other books, where they are very, very close that closeness that comes under fire, that closeness that comes with facing death together, that closeness that would come in this case by seeing death again and again and again together. And nobody can be as close as the two of them. Whether or not you think that it's a, a love relationship, it is, but not necessarily the same kind of love relationship that people see. I know that a lot of people come back from the war and they are closer to their war buddies than they are to their wives because they have been through all this together. I was told once when I was taking French, I think it was French, maybe it was when I was taking Spanish, but that the the intimate, the two, is not used actually between lovers. It should only be used between war buddies, actually, Um, because it's that kind of closeness, that kind of intimacy, which... You have to have an awful lot of bonding to be able to to be actually inside the other person's head, to be able to um, not be able to live without the other person because they are your rock. They are your your grounding, your the, the person that's kept you alive all this time. So that was one of the, the factors in there. And, and finding that in history and going, oh, wow, I can use that. And a f- bunch of other things like that. That there, there were just little points in time, little points in places, of throwing things together. Do you often uh, do do you find yourself periodically re-examining your approach to writing in general, from your your technique or your process? No, I just write. 
I'll go back and read stuff and I'll say, who wrote this? I didn't write this. <laughs> Where did this come it. from? I didn't write this. This this does not look familiar to me at all. I've had that experience with source code. <laughs> yeah. You have that experience with anything because it's it's a different part of the mind that, that you're using. I really think that, it, that my left brain and my right brain don't know what the other one's doing. When I get into edit mode, it takes me a few days to get back into being able to do writing because one is left brain and the other is right brain. And making the switch between the two of them is sometimes like putting brakes on and burning the tires. It's It's got a horrible... Painful. It's yeah. got a horrible sound to it in the yeah. brain, you know, a brain <laughs> screech. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that fourth voice behind us, that's... Uh, that's that's Mr. Hendrick. No, I'm kidding. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, Susan's uh, husband, Jay. Hello. <laughs> you got the TARDIS shirt on. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I've, got a, I've got a blue TARDIS shirt on today. It's great. Every now and then I sometimes think that my characters are sort of like the Doctor. They keep turning up with different names and different faces, different persons, but they're really the same person under it all. I've noticed uh, from a personal standpoint that uh, there seem to be only about, I don't know, 40 or 50 basic personality types in the world, and, and the rest of it is like minor variations or trimmings or or uh, affectations, but uh, there really aren't that many different types of personalities. Uh, that a human can have and you keep seeing the same kind and that's the reason you keep seeing the same kinds of personalities crop up in in fiction and i hate them all says tardis sauce the cat (laughs) 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 so i i think there's i think there's something to that well there's only what um, a friend of mine who is greek said that there is only 10 plots in the entire world and the greeks came up with them all Everything else is off that. So, forty personalities. I had a science fiction teacher once say that there's only three stories in science fiction: what if, if only, and if this goes on. And they almost all. Yeah. This almost all works. Yours are heavily what if. Mine are all what if. Yeah. Then I get to play in some of them. I wanted to do a Robin Hood book, so Dougal gets mixed up with the guys the in the forest. Just because they are manly men. They're just not in because, tights, though. Just because I took up archery and I had a wonderful person who showed me how to make arrows and I thought I'd use it in a book. Yeah. So It's all research. It is. It's all research. Everything's research. Life is research. You never know when you're going to get hit by something that becomes a book or a play or or anything. Just Or a radio station. Or a radio station. station. Or source code. Or a sock monkey. Yeah. Whatever it is you do. You just keep your eyes and ears open and eventually figure out where you can put that little piece of miscellaneous useless information and inevitably sooner or later it's all useful yes although i have not quite yet figured out what somebody telling me once that eskimos are immune to poison ivy has to do with anything or how i would ever use it well and i'm not even sure it's true but (laughs) we could find out we know a full full blood uh, inuit the the author John Ball, who was one of my writing teachers many, many years ago, the, the gentleman who wrote In the Heat of the Night, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, some early science fiction for, for children or young people. Um, did he write Rocket Ship? No. Anyway, he wrote, he wrote some uh, 
some children's science fiction stuff. It's not the spaceship under the apple tree, is it? Mm, I don't think so. We were talking about that the other day. But anyway, he... Uh, he There's some great stuff out there before Star Wars made it all shoot em ups He once came up with that, that thing about Eskimos being immune to poison ivy, so I haven't quite... Well, they don't have them. any up where they live. I know. So maybe it's so just... it's an odd thing. It's an it odd is. thing. Well, you there know There are a couple what? of other ones. See, see this sock... It keeps away tigers. Do you see any tigers around here? It works. <laughs> okay, then. I don't know. You know. I th- I, it'll make a lovely snock, uh, snock, snock monkey. Snock monkey. <laughs> <laughs> it'll make a lovely sock monkey. I think it's going to be a fish. A snock monkey. Yeah, it looks like a... Looks this like is going to be a fish. This is the fish of... Con- this, the salmon of contrition will have brothers. So how long does it take you... Uh, from the I have an idea to galley proof. Oh, it depends on the book. Um, some of them have taken three weeks. <laughs> One a of novel them in three weeks. Yeah, yeah. I've seen That's her like in... writing morning, noon, and night. Yes, creative. Yeah, this, this thing. Uh, you're, you're you ever see her fu- in a creative fugue? It's scary. Um, I used to. Susan and I have also known each other about half our lives and you know when we commuted together and she was writing while I was driving it was it was memorable the the polished no longer than that I would say three months to to actually polished the the hardest thing to do was find somebody to publish them uh-huh. I started, and you've done that yes I started in 90, 94 with Uneasy Lies that. Ahead 90, well, I guess 93 I started. I went to England in, in 94 to, to do the research in Nottingham. Yeah, but you were do, you had the characters sort of fleshed out by the 80s. I, I remember, you know, mm, talking about No, that, about was an, that was another book. That was the one that I didn't do, The Lapwing, which took place in, in California. Oh, oh, okay. That was, but, that but was, there was, but I there can was, see there, elements yes, of it there. Yes, there were, the elements there, were there. There were the two, soul, the twin souls right, that kept right. dancing around each other. Only in that case, it was a, sort of a, a Neil Diamond prototype and a Robin Williamson prototype. Hey, whatever works. Um, and that one is just sort of, didn't didn't happen but i got this the urge to do this british one went off to england to research some of the places that i was using which is very nice because one of the castles that i was using was a ruin so i had to sort of change about four pages and redescribe it as only the drum tower still stood and that kind of thing um yeah make sure it's there (laughs) and when i got the to the end of that i there was a gentleman that i had met in 91 at a thing that my husband and I went to and we stayed in touch and I went to visit him when I was over there in 94 and he said well send me a copy I'd like to read what you're what you're writing so I sent him a copy and he came back over the next year yeah came over the next year and met our roommate and (laughs) fell madly in love with her and moved over here and married her and before all of that happened, he had sent me a letter saying, "This is this is wonderful. I would, if I ever get into publishing fiction, I would really like to publish this." So we lost track of them for several years and ran into them again in early 2010. And he said, "Do you still have that book? Because I want to publish it. I am now getting ready to do. I have set my publishing company up over here. I am now getting ready to publish fiction as well as the nonfiction stuff I'm doing." And I said, yes, I do. He says, and I'll publish anything you've got. Wow. And I had been on a lag because I had written 
at that point three three books and couldn't find anybody that wanted to get into any kind of paranormal fantasy romance bromance whatever there there's so many things involved in it it's like a cross genre one of them is a mystery um so cross genres must be very difficult to sell because it's hard to explain what it is yeah this is hard yep. to market the first yep. one is a, a paranormal futuristic fantasy mythological mythological mystery yeah sure it is romance or bromance all kinds of things it can't make up its mind what it wants to be it's i'm a gemini what do you want out of life i'm a gemini it's all of the above (laughs) (laughs) so um peter padden who is my publisher who has pendrag publications who is awesome pendrag publishing who is awesome who is also publishing some zombie books and some other stuff besides this and uh lots lots and lots of wonderful things um, basically said, you write it, I'll publish it. And delightfully, he still likes the stuff that he's publishing of mine. It's not like, I promise you that I'll publish it. So I'll well, I like it. this stuff. I eat this stuff like popcorn. I mean, but the, <laughs> I don't want it to be over yet. Interesting thing, though, about going over in 94. Um, interesting I a, year, 94. I, t- I took a look at Nottingham Castle and everything, and sat at the wonderful old trip to Jerusalem which is below that carved into the the rock that the trip to Jerusalem the pub yes yeah the old trip to Jerusalem is the oldest pub in England it has been there since crusaders times as a matter of fact there are parts of it that I swear you can hear the ghosts of the crusaders walking through and got into a, a lovely discussion with a couple of Eng- English gents about King Stephen who they didn't believe there had been such a person and this poor yank had to tell him oh yes there was. He was That's around ironic. Eleven thirty-five to eleven fifty-three. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I, I looked at it and I looked at the the castle not too far away from there. I said, "There's a connection." And I went back and I wrote this secret passageway that went between the old trip to Jerusalem and Nottingham Castle, and that they used it to get supplies up to the castle from the pub and stuff like that. And it was a very nice thing. And about. Four months before the book was published, damned if they didn't find it. There <laughs> is, there is such a passageway. Whoa! And I'm going as in there all right. must have been a reason why this pub survived so long. <laughs> the pa- passageway oh is completely blocked in one place, but they managed to open it, and it does go through to up to the castle. I'll be damned! So wow, that was. That was one of the things, and it just it freaked me out. It was like, yeah, okay, well, unfortunately, the book won't come out until four months after, and they'll think I put it in after that. But no, it, that part was written down in 94. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. <sighs> but, you know, all I can say is, of course it is. Uh, yeah, but it's logical. It is. It is logical. It's a very oh, logical thing for it to have been there. Your seneschal wants to yep. sneak out for a snort every so often. <laughs> Well, well, you can't just go down the pub when you're king. Break out their butterbeer. Yeah, that's it. Well, but they're not going to. They're not going to dig a tunnel like that just so they can. The king can nip out to the pub. Well, I think that they were nipping out for a few other things too. I think that. I think it was. I think it was uh, uh, smuggling Robin and his men out of the. Right, well, dungeons, and, and, you know? but, or bringing but likely, the stuff up to the castle. Yeah, bringing things up to the castle. Yeah. It was a way that they could handle being under siege if they had to be. Yeah. That too. So it, was, it, that would, too. it would have been a tremendous strategic advantage to have that. 
Unfortunately, the castle that's there now is is fairly modern. It's it's not the original old castle. All that's left of the old castle is a bit of the wall and the gate down, further on down. But uh, there's a a wonderful museum in there, and there's parts of it that have not been used yet. The downstairs, and there there have been some people talking about bringing the entire Robin Hood collection of stuff in there. Um, some of the Robin Hood stuff is no longer active. The the Tales of Robin Hood, which used to be in Nottingham, is gone now. Oh, that's my favorite coffee cup. Yeah. We better not break it. Oh, it's gone. But there, somebody was suggesting maybe they'll open it up there. Well, the current uh, sheriff of Nottingham is a, is, seems to be very enthusiastic about the whole you know Robin Hood tie-in for Nottingham. She's a woman of, of Caribbean descent. <laughs> and, uh, okay. and has you know, and she's on the website and Lord love her, you know. She's she's for a, seems to be a long time though they wouldn't they wouldn't bring anything of Robin Hood into the castle because he was an outlaw. It couldn't be in the castle. So all of the, the statuary is outside the castle gate. There's st- wonderful oh, get bronzes <laughs> of, of Robin Hood and his men throughout but they're all on the outside of Castle Gate. It's been, what, 800 years? Get over it. I think they're starting to. I think they realize that, aside from royal weddings and coronations and stuff like that, and Doctor Who and Shakespeare, <laughs> Robin Hood is probably the biggest thing they've got going for them. Well, there's King mm-hmm. Arthur, too, but it's it, Robin Hood is definitely... I think Sherlock's bigger than King Arthur. The, yeah, well, Sherlock, too. But, so are you going to go... Are you going to go try to get over to Cardiff while you're while you're, while you're over there? I don't know. Uh, if we have time, I would like to. I would very much like to. Well, you know, BBC uh, Wales has sure, it also, sure brought a lot, a lot of uh, international attention to the Beeb. It it also depends a good deal on the weather. It's very. We're, we'll be over there in October and November. Mm, could get blustery. Uh, Scotland is, when we were there in, in uh, October before and November, Scotland was fine. It was really rainy and blustery in Brighton. It was really raining and blustery in, in London. So much so that they closed the, the, uh, the trains off and we had to, to go from London to Brighton by bus. Ugh. Yeah, that's, that's when I was there. Because it flooded. October. Yeah, it flooded. But Scotland's fairly fairly good, but we've seen um, terrible rain in Wales in June. Rain in Wales? Say it ain't so. <laughs> it de- like I said, it depends a lot on the weather. Save and, the Wales and I how see. much how much time we have. Save the Prince of Wales. <laughs> Save the Prince of Wales. Yes, they they they're much better if they're uh, you know if you if you actually mount them and you put glass. On the prince before you. No. <laughs> <laughs> prince of the prince. The prince of Wales. Uh, Someday his mm. prince will come. As we, they, you know, the photo match short store should have used that as an ad line. And but hopefully they won't nobody be will get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we're so, we're coming up on our hour. One one more question before we before we end up uh, the hour uh, for this evening. What's next? What are you working on now? What well, I'm working on now. She just closed out the uh, the tarot. Right now, what I'm working on is a series of guided meditations to go with the major arcana of the tarot cards, which will be um, probably on CDs so they can be played in the background while somebody's trying to do meditations. 
when I get that under under my belt, um, I am not sure. I have two other book projects, one of which is a mystery, um, another one of which is a novelization of a screenplay I wrote a long time ago, which is not calling to me to write because it would be have to be written in third person, and I'm so used to writing per- first person these days that making the switch to that's going to be difficult. Um, other That's than not that, the girl from Uncle, is it? No, 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 no. Um, the Midas Chord. Oh, oh, okay. And that's a whole different mythology. That's all Greek mythology. But I could probably put it together fairly reasonably in a short period of time if I were so inclined. It's just starting it. It's it's getting down and doing it. Other than that, it's uh, research over in England and coming back and finishing up some more Dougal books because yay. I have to somehow, Next year's beach reading. Yay! I have to somehow bring him up from uh, the time of King John into the era of 2065. I There's see a lot Dougal of, in the mods. So Dougal <laughs> turns up again in the last, the last two of the Glastonbury Chronicles. Dougal uh, meets Austin Powers. He's he's in the background in all of their adventures. He's that's true. He's always there in the background, at least. And they are sometimes in the background of his adventures. And, uh, yeah, as, as the line went for the ad that's going to Brighton, some men live forever, some live again and again. At the junctions of their lives, history trembles. Ooh, Ooh I love that. That's going in the, the, the article on the... And with that, uh, it's, we're coming up to the end of our show. S.P. Hendrick, author of the Glastonbury Chronicles series. Thank you very much for appearing on the Event Horizon this evening. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor. Can I push the button? Can I push the button this time? Okay, fine. All right. You have been listening to Krypton Radio's weekly production of the Event Horizon, Where the Impossible Happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio General Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by Christopher B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. If you have a company and you would like to be an Event Horizon sponsor, now is your chance. Email us at kryptonradio at kryptonradio.com for more information. Stay tuned for tonight's episode of X-1. Join us next week on Saturday, 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for the next episode of The Event Horizon. This episode will be replayed Sunday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. The Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. This has been a Krypton Radio production.